Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. All right. Good morning. This is the 9.15 early sobriety meeting. Is everybody where they think they should be? All right. You mean physically or sobriety? (laughs) Good question. Start physically. Yeah, yeah. easy does it. All right. Um, Let's see. My name is uh, LB. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I am a sexaholic. Hi, LB. Hi. Uh, and I will be your uh, facilitator, leader. Um, this is a recorded session, so I'll read the recorded session reading. In the spirit of the fifth tradition, to carry the message, this session will be recorded. The recorder will not be turned off during this session. If you do not wish to be recorded, you may participate by listening or attend another session. We ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion. Uh, please do not tamper with the recording equipment. I assume he means this thing over here because we're going to be passing the mic, you know, between us. And if you come up, we'll probably set it up there. But otherwise, we're not going to push any buttons or anything. Um, can you please join me in a in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer, God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right. The essay purpose. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the guidelines for sharing during this meeting. We do not cross-talk. That is, we share with the group as a whole rather than addressing any individual member. We speak in the I, not the we or the you. We leave our other identities at the door, including politics, religions, therapies, treatment centers, occupations, and other 12-step issues. We talk about and from the essay point of view. Our meetings focus on the essay approach to recovery, so whenever possible we avoid the mention of titles and authors that are not essay-approved literature. 
We avoid profanity, sexual descriptions, and sexually abusive language. When sharing strays, we can remind each other <clears throat> excuse me, of our commitment to these guidelines by quietly raising our hands. It may not work if Harvey's the one talking, according, <laughs> according to his talk last night. Um, let's see, this is a panel session, so our panelists for this session are myself, LB, and this is um, Will from Portland. Um, each of our panelists will share for a few 15 minutes, I just changed that, on the topic. We will then open the meeting for sharing or questions. Again, we ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion. We ask that you be mindful of the time to allow others a chance to share. Um, okay, <clears throat> that's all the preliminaries. Um, Will and I talked a little bit before and we decided what we'd do. There's only two of us. We'll each take uh, about 15 minutes or so to share on the topic and then open up uh, for, as it says, for um, questions. Uh, if you do share, we ask that uh, you share out of your experience and that you um, have worked the steps or are working the steps uh, so that all of us get to benefit from as much uh, recovery uh, as possible. Uh, so with that, um, I'm going to read a little bit from the White Book on page 77. This, uh, and this is, you know, the early sobriety topic, um, and I take that to mean the first couple, several months, the first year, I don't know, it's probably different for everybody. Um, for me, it was... Um, a really emotionally difficult time, and I picked this passage from uh, from the White Book because I read it over and over uh, for the first I don't know year or so. And I'm going to read through it, and as I read through it, I'll stop periodically and share certain things. But it's on 77. It's called "How It Works: The Practical Reality." This title is adapted from Chapter Five of Alcoholics Anonymous, entitled "How It Works." The books Alcoholics Anonymous and Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, the Twelve and Twelve constitute the basic text of the original 12-step program. This section, meaning this section and the steps on the white book, this section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Our aim here is to try to get at the essential purpose of each step or group of steps so they can be readily put into action. Um, I'll use this phrase from the white book itself to make a plug for these two books, uh, the big book and the 12 and 12, which the white book itself says are the basic text of the 12-step program. Um, as I've heard Will say a number of times, the instruction manual is, is this book here, um, the big book. It tells us exactly how to do the steps. Um, continuing on the white book, the essay program is a program of action. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. Um, and why is that? If I'm not sober, that means I'm still leaning on lust rather than on God, and lust serves only to cover over the crap in me that I don't want to face, so without sobriety there is no program of recovery. I can't be reaching out to lust and, and moving forward in my relationship with my higher power at the same time. Uh, however, continuing in the white book, without reversing the deadly traits that underlie our addiction, there is no positive and lasting sobriety. To recover from a life based on wrong attitudes, self-obsession, separation, false connections, blindness, and spiritual death requires a program of action that includes a fundamental change in attitude, character change, union, 
the true connection, self-awareness, and spiritual life. Working the principles of the steps as a new way of living has made this happen for us. Um, so I guess what I, what I want to share mainly is the idea that um, I can get sober. And, and I was just, you know, Will and I were talking uh, last night after, the, uh, after dinner you know, I, I stopped acting out when I first started coming to meetings, but it, there was a period between my stopping acting out and my getting through the steps uh, where I was a wreck. You know, I was miserable. You know, I've got no acting out, no medication, and I've got no, um, you know, recovery from, you know, uh, my spiritual malady. So, you know, I'm depressed. I'm having crying jags. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm, you know, having fantasies about stabbing my wife with my toothbrush. And I don't know why, um, you know, and I'm, I'm convinced that if I could just get away with get away from her and go live in a monastery, everything's going to be great. Um, you know, I'm just crazy. And that's because uh, I hadn't gone through the, you know, the cleaning out process of the steps. Um, so, you know, I guess what I would say to people in, uh, in early sobriety, if you haven't got through the steps, get through the steps by all means. And I had someone say that to me more than once. Um, in fact, I called the guy who's now my sponsor. I was in between like my eighth and ninth step, and uh, you know I was just a wreck. You know I was having suicidal thoughts and all this crap. And I called him and was talking about something. I don't even remember what. And he says, "Well, how are you? You know, how are your amends coming?" Well, I, I, you know, <laughs> I haven't done them yet. And he just said, "You know, well, you need to get your ass in gear." You know, verbatim is what he said to me. And I and I heard that. Thank God. And I went home and and you know got my ass in gear and finished that. Uh, finished those steps, uh, and my life changed. Um, so I think that was that's something I would probably stress more than anything else because that's what did it for me. You know, I read tons of books. You know, I was seeing a counselor and uh, you know all kinds of stuff, and I was just dying. Uh, and getting through the steps was what um, was what changed my life. The other thing is in regard to the steps. I think I had an idea that I would come in and, and if I got through the steps, then then I'd be done. You know, I did the steps. All right. You know, now I just kind of get to coast from here on out and that is not at all the case not not for me anyway it's not a once and done process like uh, the way I look at it for me is well it says in the reading uh, that there is a solution reading in the big book that you know there's nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools that was laid at our feet and that's exactly how I look at the steps I go through the steps the first time initially and there's a lot of cleaning out that goes on I mean it's amazing but essentially what I've done is gather uh, a bunch of tools, you know, that have been given to me by my sponsor and people in the meetings and, uh, you know, the literature, and I just keep using those over and over every day. Um, and, you know, and if I keep doing that, things keep getting better and better. Um, as one of our old-timers from out Will's Way says, uh, David M. says that it just keeps getting better. Um, so... Let's see. I'm going to read just a little bit from the 12 and 12 on page 39. I've got it marked here. I'm going to find out what it is that I may have had marked. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. At the very bottom of page 39, the 12 and 12, it's, and this is in the chapter on step three, more sobriety brought about by the admission of sexaholism and by attendance at a few meetings is very good indeed. But it is bound to be a far cry from permanent sobriety and a contented, useful life. 
That is just where the remaining steps of the SA program come in. Nothing short of continuous action upon these as a way of life can bring the much-desired result, and I, inter I interpret the much-desired result as being permanent sobriety and a contented, useful life. Um, and then it says later on, in the, on that page, all of the 12 steps require sustained and personal exertion to conform to their principles, and so we trust to God's will. Um, so, again, you know, I go through the process and I gather all these tools and then I just keep using them over and over and over. And some of those tools for me are daily prayer and meditation. Um, and, you know, I, I, as if you heard Harvey speak, he talked about hitting his knees first thing in the morning and last thing before he goes to bed. And I do that and I have a, a regular meditation practice that I do. And, um, you know, I do a daily 10-step inventory at the end of the night. I write, you know, I write it all out. And I, I, just like it says in the 12 and 12, if you've read this chapter on step 10, the 12 and 12, about drawing up a balance sheet, credits and debits and all of that, I follow that format pretty much exactly. Um, that's not the one way to do a 10-step inventory. That's just the way I do it. Uh, daily phone calls. You know, I make a number of calls a day. I receive, um, you know, some calls every day. Uh, and, I, and I do that mo mainly to check in with others, to share what's going on with me, lust, resentment, fear, any other of a couple handfuls, de a couple handfuls of defects that crop up for me. Uh, sponsor other people, uh, working the 12 step. Um, you know, I ask God for removal of my defects anytime they crop up. You know, step six and seven, I surrender lust constantly. Um, so, you know, these are things I do every day, um, you know, over and over and over. And, and in doing that, um, you know, things get better. The depressions, the whatever else, the unmanageability in relationships, um, all of that. Do you have your watch? I'll get my phone out. All right. Um, let's see. I've got a few other things here, but I don't think I'm going to go on a whole lot longer. Uh, I told you about my eighth step. Um, I covered that about stalling in my eight step, and my friend told me to get my ass in gear, and that was really important for me. Um, one of the last things I'll share is, and I've heard a lot of people say this, and it's true for me too, is that I don't have to do the steps perfectly. I just have to do them. Uh, I've even heard someone, one of our uh, members who's been sober, I think about 10 years now, uh, said one time, he said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even good at step work, but I still do it, and it still works. Um, and that was important for me because I'm, you know, I don't know if anybody else has a defect of perfectionism, but uh, I do. And so, you know, that can really uh, trip me up when I'm doing things like a four-step or an eight-step or a nine-step. You know, I got to do this perfectly. And uh, if that keeps me from doing it, then it's then it is um, that's not good. Uh, I look back at my my first four-step. I think I've done three now. I look back at my first four-step and just think. Just the lack of insight. I mean, it's just bad. It's bad. But it worked, you know. It was the best I could do, you know. And I finished it, and I shared it with somebody else. And, uh, you know, and I move on. And I come to my next four-step, and I have a little bit more insight. And I get to my next four-step, and a little bit more insight. Um, so I need to throw out that idea that I have to do anything uh, perfectly, because what it will do is keep me from doing it at all, and then I'm, you know, in danger of, uh, you know, death. Because uh, I've you know I've been in that place a couple of times where I've considered taking my own life uh, just because of all the crap going on inside me. Um, one thing I say to myself a lot of times before I'm going to do any sort of endeavor is uh, anything worth doing poorly is uh, no what is it anything worth doing is worth doing poorly but it's worth getting done. 
Um, I heard that and I just thought, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> but, uh, but it works. So um, I'm going to read one quick thing from the big book and I'm going to turn it over to Will. In the back on page 567, the, uh, this is the third edition, by the way. Sorry, 569. It's a little section on spiritual experience. And if you haven't read this, I really recommend it. It's very helpful to me because I thought that my spiritual experience was supposed to look like Bill W.'s or, uh, you know, any other number of religious people who've had a um, uh, lightning, you know, road to Damascus experience. So that was a biblical illusion. I hope uh, that didn't offend anybody. Um, but basically it says, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, in the first few chapters of the big book, it says a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many sexaholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must, require, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Uh, then it says among our growing membership, uh, thousands of sex... Let's see... Thousands of such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. And this is the important part. Most of our experiences, this is where I uh, identify, are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. Um, so, you know, I read that because that, that helps me and then may help somebody else, not, you know, to not get discouraged if, you know, I'm not seeing progress in myself. I think I should be seeing other people may be seeing it. And chances are if I'm working the program, at some point I'm going to look back and go, wow, six months ago I was way different than I am today. Um, and I may not have seen it happening, but I can look back and notice it. And that's definitely been true for me. Um, so uh, thanks for letting me share. I'll turn it over to Will. My name is Will. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hi, Will. Um, by God's grace and the Fellowship of Sexaholics Anonymous, I've been sober since May 8th, 2007. Um, I am really, really grateful for this opportunity. Um, LB actually asked me to help be a part of this panel um, about an hour ago. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, uh, on, I was instructed by someone with 21 years of sobriety when I'm asked to share my experience, um, not to prepare um, but to ask God for the right words, thoughts, and actions. And um, so I called my sponsor when I got back to, I went back to my hotel room to meditate before I came down here and uh, left him a message. He called me back and, you know, it was exactly what he said. He said, you know, what a, what a gift to see you grow um, from the guy you were when you walked into these rooms to where you're in an opportunity to share your experience, strength, and hope. Um, you know, I am not the person I was when I got here um, by any means. Um, one of the things that's important for me, I came to Sexaholics Anonymous to get sober. Um, my acting out was going to kill me. Um, but the last time I acted out, I had a woman's husband threaten to kill me. This is a fatal disease for me. I had to get in here and get sober to live. Um, I am not here today to stay sober. I'm here to recover from sexaholism. And there's a very big difference to me. Um, my, my sponsor, one of his favorite sayings is, sober is not well. Um, you know, and... It was pointed out to me in our steps, lust is only in the first step. The rest of the steps are about changing who we are, and that's what recovery means to me. Um, I can't work those steps 
the way they're supposed to be worked if I'm not staying sober because lust will contaminate every bit of work I do. I can't see my defects of character um, in four through seven if I'm still acting out because the you know I medicate those feelings you know the resentments the you know fears all of that the judgmental attitudes are all medicated through lust and if I'm still lusting and acting out I'm not able to get a clear picture of that. Um, one of the things I you know I listen to a lot of speaker CDs. Um, I used to fantasize a lot while I was driving. You know, that was pretty much all I did. I didn't remember any commute I ever made because I was in fantasy from the time I left my starting point till I got to my destination. Um, so I started listening to speaker CDs. And one of the speakers I listened to was it's an AA speaker, but he talks about um, he got sober because his internal organs all failed, and um, and so they told him not to drink for a year, and so he didn't drink for a year. But he didn't go to AA, and he said, "Not drinking and not changing." I think my wife thought I was just trying to punish her, you know. And that's the thing for me: if I'm not acting out, but I'm not changing, I am not a nice person, you know. Because one, I've still got all the defects of character, all the things that drove me to lust are still there, but then I'm not medicating them, so they're just building, you know. Um, I actually am going to read a couple things too. Um, the first is page 78 in the white book. It says, we will try to present a realistic picture of our own experiences in recovery. We trust this will shed light on the path ahead for others and communicate in a direct and personal way how the program works for us. If it seems our feet are too much on the earth, that is because not one of us has ever worked the steps perfectly. The road was up and down, smooth and rocky. Sometimes we were surrounded by beautiful vistas. At others, we were in a fog and saw nothing but the placing of one foot in front of the other as we trudged ahead. At times we experience great joy, at other times doubt, uncertainty, depression, and fear. At, t at times it seemed we were running with winged feet, at others standing still, and still others that we were losing ground. But we found that once on this road, something deep within told us that it was the right path for us. We simply knew it, and that was enough to keep us going. Whatever our experience, we found it to be the greatest adventure of our lives. Um, I came in uh, in my first meeting, well... <laughs> My first meeting was actually two years prior to when I got sober, and uh, I convinced myself that I wasn't a sexaholic at first, and then uh, my, my wife had found out I was having an affair online. She found out again. Uh, that time I faked it, and I came in and claimed I was sober and, um, for a year and a half, and I continued to act out for a year and a half, and it got progressively worse. And, uh, and I got in here because I had nothing left, you know. Um, my wife had told me we were getting a divorce. She kicked me out of the house. I thought I was going to lose my job. Um, Everything had collapsed on me, and I simply had nowhere left to go. Um, and it was the first time I came into an essay meeting for myself uh, because I needed it. Um, and the first couple months were really painful. You know, there was a lot of wreckage in my marriage. There was a lot of wreckage in my work. Everything about me was just chaos. And slowly, you know, like LB said, uh, I didn't see any change in myself. Um, but my wife invited me to come back home. We are still married today. Things happened, and other people saw them, you know, and... Uh, and I think that's the key is, you know, I had the, the spiritual experience. Mine is of the educational variety, too, you know, um, bit by bit. I can see now today that I'm not the same person I was when I got here. Um, I didn't see the change happening as it's happened. Um, but this is, you know, this is a 12-step program, and it is through working the steps that I see that change. You know, I had to surrender lust, uh, come to believe in a higher power, and turn my will and my life over to that higher power in order to get sober. In order to stay sober and recover, uh, I have to look at my defects of character and turn those over to my higher power. I have to make amends and clear up the wrongs that I've done in my life. Um, 
and then continue to make amends as I'm continue to be wrong. I'm still a sexaholic today. I'm still judgmental. I still uh, lose my temper, and uh, and I hate ten step amends. I absolutely hate having to go and tell someone I was wrong. And and so the uh, the part in the twelve and twelves in the tenth step that says, uh, you know, uh, nothing pays off like restraint of tongue and pen. Um, that I have found to be quite accurate because I don't want to go make an amends later and the best way to not make an amends is to not say something that I have to make an amends for. Um, when I got in, I, I was pretty sure that it was just going to be miserable not acting out, you know, and that was kind of what I was resigned to. I knew I couldn't act out because I was going to die if I did, but I thought my life would be the same without acting out. And I'm really grateful that some uh, old-timers in my area pointed out some parts in the big book uh, that told me that wasn't the case. I was encouraged to read the Ninth Step Promises. Uh, I was told they were the 12, uh, the 12 promises of the big book, um, and I started to wonder why they weren't coming true, you know. Um, and then I was told they were the Ninth Step Promises. They directly follow the Ninth Step, and that in order to, you know, feel those promises and see them come true in my life, I actually had to work the Ninth Step. Um, and and I found that to be true. Now, God was good to me, and he gave me some of those. You know, a fear of people and economic insecurity has started to leave me. Um, you know, things are changing. And, you know, now that it, but in doing the ninth step, you know, um, it, what a gift. I get to see that I, you know, I am capable of setting aside the wrongs that I did early on in uh, my life, and I don't have to carry those with me anymore. Um the other part, and I'm going to read this from the big book, uh, page 132 and a little on 133. This was read to me early on, um, and this is really important. This is why I'm still here. Uh, it says, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. And down to the next paragraph. Uh, so we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. That is, uh, that's what recovery looks like to me. I, I am not always happy, joyous, and free. You know, um, I, like I said, I am still a sexaholic. I do still struggle. But on the, you know. On the whole, my life today is fun. Um, I look at this experience of coming to this conference, being able to share my experience with all of you, um, as such a gift and such a miracle of Sexaholics Anonymous. Um, you know, I I still slip into the old attitudes. You know, I, I was flying standby coming here, and I I got bumped off three flights in a row, um, and. They were telling me that I had one more shot, and if I didn't make that flight, that I was sleeping in the airport in Denver yesterday. And um, the atheism creeps back in, you know, of, you know, God, why'd you do this to me? And then, well, there must be no God. If I can't get to a SA conference, then, you know, God must know I need to be there, right? And uh, and then, you know, my higher power is really kind and loving, and so there was three, uh, there was one seat left on the last flight, and three people, I was the third person in line for that, and the other two were together and didn't want to be split up, and I got put on that flight, you know. And today, in the past, I would have thought, well, yeah, of course, I deserve that, you know. Um, what sobriety and recovery has changed for me is I can say, thank you, God. You know, I understand that you needed me to be here just as much as I needed to be here, and, um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to get here on time. Um, I think the, the one biggest key to, to me was the working the steps. I got a sponsor who is a um, 
very passionate about the steps and, uh, and a drill sergeant. <laughs> and, uh, and he hammered, you know, we work, this is a 12-step program. This is not therapy. This is not somewhere where I come and just complain about my problems. I come in here to learn how to work the steps. And once I've worked those steps, I share my experience on them. And um, in doing so, my life has um, completely changed. You know, the, the big book talks about a total psychic change. You know, and I have experienced that today. Um, you know, this program has given me such gifts, um, being able to travel and spend time with sexaholics. You know, I met LB in Denver at the International uh, last summer. You know, living in Portland, I've got phone numbers, you know, in Tennessee, Texas, New York, uh, Washington, Canada, um, you know, Colorado. And I talk to these people. These are people that I have nothing in common with except for the fact that we are sexaholics. And, uh, and the love and companionship and fellowship that is there in those phone calls is something that is uh, undeniably wonderful, you know. Um, it is, it, the keys for me today is that, you know, in continuing to work on the smaller defects of character, I can t I, I'm given the gift of being the person that I always wanted to be. Um, I have the ability to walk t with my head up and look people in the eye. I don't have to be ashamed of what I've done or worry that someone's going to find out what I've done or think people are judging me. Um, today I know that I am capable of being a, a useful member of society, and, and that's what recovery is to me. Um, without sobriety, I wouldn't have that, but without recovery, I won't, I won't maintain any sobriety whatsoever. Um, I'm a sexaholic because of my defects of character. Uh, lust was just what I chose to, to medicate that. If I wasn't a sexaholic, I'd be addicted to something else. I know that without a doubt. Um, so by removing those defects of character, asking God to remove them, I don't do it. Um, I'm given the opportunity to live a fun life, you know, and sobriety is fun, you know. It didn't seem like it when I got sober, um, but recovery is a joy. Uh, my home group, we laugh for an hour and a half straight every Friday night, um, and we make fun of each other um, in the most loving way, you know. Uh, our favorite saying, you know, we have a little crosstalk, and Someone will share some insane thing, and, and someone else will say, well, how's that working for you? And, uh, and the thing is, you know, in, in the past, I would be so sensitive to something like that, like someone was judging me. But I can see these are people that have been through what I've been through, and, and we have found a solution. You know, um, the last part, you know, the, the, the chapter, there is a solution. You know, um, it talks about how we are no people who normally wouldn't meet, uh, but there uh, exists among us a fellowship that is undeniably wonderful. And, and that's a gift today, is that I have people that I love and care about and that love and care about me. And, uh, and it's sexaholism that brought us together. And that's something I can never be sufficiently grateful for. So um, I guess that's all I got. So open it up. Thanks, Will. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to move the mic up here. Uh, and uh, if anyone has questions or uh, comments, um, along the lines of early sobriety come up and I think what they usually do is um, you know the person who's talking if someone else wants to come up kind of you know maybe line up in this front row of seats up here um, you know and, and as you get done maybe go around back behind the table so we can get kind of a uh, manageable flow of people we've got about uh, 25 minutes or 20 minutes My name's Will. I'm a sexaholic. Hello. 
Um, and I have a very limited amount of time in sobriety right now, um, and I'm working through the steps with my sponsor, and I've done so before, but it just sort of seems like I wasn't willing to take certain actions, which kind of seemed to have pretty predictable consequences. But in your um, in your experience, in having made an eighth step list, um, what is your experience, or how do you determine first off if you were going to directly make amends to somebody that was an acting out partner? Um, and if you were, do you do that with a letter? Do you do, do you, what, what's your criteria for deciding whether you owe them an amends or maybe the kinder thing is to completely leave them alone? Or how do you decide how and if and, and by what way you would make amends to uh, somebody that is an acting out partner? Um, and I know the circumstances sometimes are a little different between a single person and a married person. I don't think it's that different, but that probably is a factor involved as well. And that sort of thing. So, I'd just if you've got some experience with that, I'd love to hear it. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Uh, LB sexaholic. Thanks for the question. Um, one thing that occurred to me, I, I neglected to mention my sobriety date when I started sharing. I have been sober since October of '06. So uh, I know Will said that, and I had totally forgot. So. Uh, uh, just briefly on the question, uh, making amends to former acting out partners, for me, um, a lot of the um, people that I acted out with um, were very brief sort of affairs, not very uh, long-standing relationships. And, in, well, first of all, my, my direct response would be just, you know, talk over it with my sponsor. You know, what does he say about it? Um, and, and that's what I did. And um, his, in most cases, I wrote the person a letter and shared it with him and uh, burned it. His his thought was, you know, I don't need to go contacting those people that I haven't talked to in years, that there wasn't any kind of a long you know, relationship and just, you know, dredge up something that, that uh, you know, they might rather forget. Um, so that was now, you know, uh, let's see. No, I guess I guess most of the most of the people on my list under that fell into that category. I, that, that was what I did, un, you know, under my sponsor's direction. Now, there, there may be others who have it uh, differently. I'm going to turn it over to Will and see what he has to say. But that's uh, that's was my experience with doing that. So thanks. I'm Will, I'm sexaholic. Hey, um, when I got sober, that was actually a big question I had um, because I was terrified of it, but the sexaholic in me was still looking forward to that. You know, it was an opportunity to contact them, them again. Um, you know, I am still a sexaholic to this day. Uh, I was told as a basic rule I will not be making direct amends to any of my former acting out partners, um, mostly because of that, that reason. It tells us uh, in the ninth step, made direct amends, except when to do so would injure them or others. Uh, for me, the type of sexaholic I am, um, I, you know, I don't qualify under the legal definition, but I am a sexual predator. You know, I looked for vulnerable women and I took advantage of them. Um, for me to contact them again would do harm to them or others. Um, it would do harm to them. It would do harm to me. It would do harm to my wife um, and anyone in their family, anyone that they're relate, you know, uh, connected to. Um, in the same instance that LB talked about, it's uh, you know, I talk about with my sponsor. Uh, you know, I'm not qualified to make those decisions for myself um, because my diseased attitudes, my my broken brain will continue to try and find a rationalization for things that I should not do. Um, 
but for the most part, it's, uh, you know, writing out the letter, writing out the amends, sharing it with my sponsor, and, and then being rid of it. Um, and the best, the thing I was told, the biggest amends I can make to them is to never contact them again. Um, because, because of the way I acted out, you know, I used these people and threw them away. And, and that was just what I did. So to make an amends to them, the best way that I can make an amends for what I did is to leave them alone, you know. And, uh, so that's, that's the experience. But I was told, you know, the person, person with 21 years of sobriety told me that we don't make direct amends. Um, but I would clear it with your sponsor. Uh, it's the biggest thing, you know. Uh, I think for, for me, I'm not qualified to make decisions. I don't have the clarity in my own situation. But my sponsor has been a really big key in that and being able to help me find clarity. Thanks. Thanks, Will. My name is Mike. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Hey, Mike. Hi. Uh, this is my second time around, and the first time around I was in for a year and a half, but I didn't get a sponsor. Didn't work the steps. Didn't make phone calls. It was the most miserable year of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought I thought being out there was more would, would be more miserable, but that was awful. Um, so I, just like I'm sure a lot of folks will said this isn't working I went back out and stopped going to meetings and participating in the program and something really awful happened another boundary crossed and it just shook me up you know threw almost threw everything away in a matter of five minutes and now I'm back and um, this time around I took it very 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 seriously and got a sponsor started working the steps made those phone calls every single day really started getting note guys in the program um, and uh, the, the only thing that that's, that I still uh, that, not the only thing I still struggle with, but the thing that I still remember from the first time around um, was the whole day being a constant battle. And uh, what I mean by that is, I, you know, as soon as I'd leave my house and get on the bus, there'd be someone to fantasize about on the bus, and then I'd go to a classroom, and it just seemed like it never stopped, it never stopped. And, uh, you know, I, I heard the tools. I didn't lose them, but I definitely heard them. The, you know, pray to find in that person what, you know, that, that God will give you what you want, what you're looking for in that person or in that fantasy or in that movie you're playing. And even without all those people I'd run into, there were the memories of what things I had done that were still playing over my head and snapshots, and it just seemed like it never ended. And if I was going to make phone calls every single time something like that happened, I would never be off the phone for 24 hours a day. Um, and so I just, I guess it's more of a general thing. I'm very much at the beginning still. Um, and I'd just like to hear how at the beginning you deal with that constant barrage and hopefully you relate of fantasy and the replay of the things you did and dealing with interacting with women you know, in a regular sort of way um, and trying to remain sober not just of acting out but of lust and entertaining fantasy throughout all of that. Um, so, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Uh, LB, sexaholic. Um, early on, I didn't. You meant one thing mentioned was uh, interacting. You know how to interact with women. I I just interacted with them as little as possible early on, um, and because I I couldn't see them as anything other than a lust object. Um, so you know that was where I was coming from. And today, that's not always true. I'm grateful for that. Um, what came to mind when you were sharing, and you may have read this before, but there's a great section in the White Book on page 66 through 69, a section called The First Test, Surrender, then the next test, and then the next test, and the next, um, where it talks about that very thing of just constant surrender, you know, all, you know, throughout the day, and it even says, you know, sometimes a hundred, and that's even a low number on some days, a hundred times a day. Um, 
And my experience is that, you know, if I if I just keep practicing that, it, it does get better. It does become a habit, just like lusting was a habit. Um, and, you know, I share this, this amazing thing that has happened after a couple of years of, of that constant surrender where, you know, I might be at work and I'll be walking down the hallway and I'll, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I'll notice a woman who, you know, may or may not be attractive. I don't know. I haven't seen her yet. But before I even look, and before I really even consciously think about it, uh, a, a prayer will start running through my head, either for that person or just God help me, you know, before I even consciously choose to say it, because it has become such a habit. Um, and that's really cool, you know, that, that I am praying without consciously making the decision. Now, that's not always the case, but that has happened a number of times. Um, so... Uh, Practice, practice, practice. That's uh, that's the message I get from that section. So if if you haven't read if you haven't read that sixty six through sixty nine, it's uh, very instructive in that way. Thanks. I'm Will. I'm a sexaholic. Um, I had that problem big time when I first got sober. Uh, we have a lot of meetings in Portland area, and we're very blessed that way. Uh, my Higher power still wanted to test my willingness, so my home group is the farthest meeting from me. Uh, it takes, if there were no traffic, it takes about 45 minutes. That's never the case, so it usually takes a little over an hour to get to that meeting. Um, and driving up there, uh, you know, fantasy euphoric recall would kick in, and uh, so I'd surrender it. Um, it would go away, and because I'm a skeptic and a sexaholic, I wouldn't believe it had gone away, so I'd intentionally start thinking about it again. Like, there's no way that that actually was removed. I am sick. I am, I may be sicker than most, you know. My sponsor told me I'm sicker than most. So, um, And it was to continue to surrender it again, and eventually that habit of calling it, intentionally calling it back up fell away. I could start to believe that it actually was going away. Um, so, like LB said, you know, prayer has become a habit, to an extent, um, I am still triggered on a daily basis. You know, uh, I like you know, speaker C.D. Jessel said that he'd lust until three days after he died. You know, and that's the type of sexaholic I am. You know, um, it's I, I I see myself as that way. I will continue to be triggered. I will continue to be a sexaholic. Lust will continue to be an issue for me until about three days after I die. Um, but. What happens is the tools become more powerful than the lust over time, and they become more habitual than the lust was in the first place. You know, um, I had three affairs with women I worked with, and I continued to work with them when I got sober. Um, one of the things that's still an issue for me, one of them has a very distinct uh, sound when she walks. She wears you know, shoes that make a distinctive sound. Um, I was told that my shoes are my best recovery tool. So I hear her walking by, I walk a different direction, um, you know. And I, in the beginning, I was very triggered by the sound of her walking by. Um, today, I'm grateful for it because I can hear her coming and I can leave, you know, and, and it is a gift. I can start praying. I hear those boots on, the, on our uh, carpet in our office building and, you know, God help me, you know, and all the, the three-part surrender and those things. And that's, that's the biggest thing for me is it's, um, it's become a habit to turn to my higher power instead of turning to lust, you know. And I think for for me, in my experience and from what I've heard from those who have gone before me, is lust still comes up. We are still triggered, um, but we do realize that God will remove that from us, and we turn to him faster, you know. And um, it's that's the gift is we are given that ability to to realize that our higher power will be there. And, you know, when I got sober, it was 10 minutes of fantasy and then realizing how toxic that was and I'd start praying and then it was five minutes. Um, I'm 
usually down in the less than a minute range now where I get that trigger and it's like, oh, God, help me, you know, um, you know please help me find in you what I'm looking for in her. Um, and it's the same way with all the other defects. Resentment comes up and I'm, I turn to it much faster, turn to my higher power much faster. Um, and that's the biggest key is it's just the 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 way we process it changes and evolves and we are able to surrender faster. And, and there's two parts to that is one we're able to get rid of that trigger. And two, there's less wreckage that comes with it. If I entertain a 10-minute fantasy about someone and then surrender it, I'm having to continue to surrender it because it's built such a presence in my mind. If I hear those boots on the carpet now and I, God help me, she walks by, you know, and I go back to doing whatever I was doing before that. And so there's not that residual effect now. Uh, the faster I surrender it, the less I have to deal with it. So, thanks. Thanks a lot. Hi, I'm JP. My name is uh, JP, and I am a sexaholic. <laughs> uh, I've been sober for sounds really loud. Um, I've been sober for six and a half months, and my question is to the panel. Uh, it really resonated here. I, I didn't know what I was going to come into in this meeting. I thought, oh, I'll get some relief, and both of you sort of said the same thing. Where I'm, that's where I'm at right now. Where I'm in between. I'm not acting out, but I'm not done my steps, so I'm effing miserable. Um, and I go, I'm working on my fourth step with my sponsor, and uh, and I started two weeks before holidays, which I don't know, it doesn't matter, but uh, holidays were difficult for me, being away from my separated from my wife and not talking with my family and all that sort of stuff. So I said I'll, I'll put it down. But every time I do the steps, I get really triggered with anger and sadness, and then I'm just like more miserable. And then uh, so I just you know, how can I deal with that? A, and then B, how do I get my my button gear? Um, how did that work for you guys in terms of, do you guys do it methodically like every day, an hour, or, you know, um, so I can just get through this and get some get some relief? Thanks. Thanks. Well, I'm a sexaholic. Um, I had that same issue. Um, when I did my fourth step the first time, I... Uh, I figured I just wanted to be done with it, so I did it with the purpose of being done with it and moving on rather than the purpose of actually doing it. Um, and I had to go back. I got to my eighth step, and uh, I was pulling the list of names from the fourth step, and I had no willingness to move forward. And so I was told, if you ever have trouble with a step, go back to the one before it. And so I went back to seven, <laughs> went back to six, went back to five, went back to four, and I redid my fourth step. Um, and what I did is uh, I spent about ten minutes a day, and... Um, I did it daily, and that was a key for me because it did two things. It reaffirmed to myself that I was committed to moving forward, um, and I got it done And progressively. Um, Ten to 15 minutes was all I'd work on it because if I did spend um, – when I did my wrote out my first step, I wrote like for an hour at a time, and um, it was really triggering for me. And I also made the mistake of writing out my first step right before I went to bed, and um, so I'm calling up all that old lust and then trying to go to sleep, and that didn't work very well. Um, so I, I usually, you know, I do my step work in the mornings. Uh, I spend about 10 to 15 minutes on step work every morning. I make a phone call right after I get done with it. When I was doing my fourth step, I made a phone call right before and right after working on it because it was really triggering for me. Uh, there's a lot of shame tied to some of the resentments and fears that I have, um, and and that shame will kill me if I hold on to it. So. 
it was really important for me to tie in with the fellowship and with my higher power before and after um, I pr- hit my knees and pray. Um, that's a really big thing for me, too. I didn't mention that. I pray on my knees um, because it it's a sign of surrender to me. You know, I didn't pray before I got to SA. I was called myself agnostic, but I was a practice, practicing atheist um, as far as that went. But for me, I, I have to get on my knees to pray in the morning um, because that's me saying, God, I, I surrender to you. Whatever happens today is yours. So I did that. I'd pray on my knees beforehand and after working on the steps. And, and then whatever I do, you know, it, it's kind of, it's the third step is, you know, God, I'm giving this step work to you. Whatever comes out of it is yours. It's not mine. And, um, and then I don't have to carry it because it belongs to God, not me. So that was a big part for me. Thanks. Thanks, Will. Um, might as well get all the way out of my chair. Uh, we've got about five minutes, so time for maybe one more. Hey, everyone. My name is Mike. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Mike. Uh, so over about two months, um, I got a top plate that I'm a little anxious about speaking in the mic and on the recording. I have like this idea, like somebody's going to say, oh, I know that guy. I'm going to send, send a recording to like, all his friends and family or something. Um, thanks for the, uh, for the share, guys. Uh, LB and Will. Um, I got to say, I like your, your books. They're like vintage collector's items. <laughs> um, I wanted to share a little of uh, my experience with with uh, with this process of the step work, and then I had a question. Um, I'm, a, I'm working on step four right now, and for me, it's been um, it's been really difficult. Every time I want to get to the step work, I get this pit in my stomach, like I really don't want to do this. I find all the excuses in the world not to do it, um, but every time I do it. I feel better right after I finish. I get like a temporary relief, like I'm like I'm on the road to something better. Um, and uh, I have this this thing that I do. I, I tend to like intellectualize everything and obsess over it. And um, and I, I tend to compare myself to a lot of other people in the program. And a lot of times I'm sitting around meetings and I, I hear a guy who's been in the program for you know 75 years and he says, "Well, I'm working on step one." And then I and then I'll you know I'll think to myself well I can't be on step four if he's on step one, and uh, even when I finished my step three I had I had written like literally 20 pages of, of journaling I wrote a letter to God I wrote a you know uh, all kinds of, of things about the third step and my sponsor said all right congratulations now go on to your fourth step I said but you know I don't feel any different I mean maybe I should go back maybe I should do more and then the perfectionism kicks in so the message that I'm giving is like for me what's worked is just to bite-size it, to have it, you know, every day at a specific time. I set a, a, mem- uh, a uh, reminder, my BlackBerry pops up at, you know, 4 o'clock, and I shut everything off. I go on to, to my journal, and I just start, you know, writing out my resentments, my role in them, and my defects, and so on. Um, the question that I had for you was, you know, two months sober, and I have, like, this expectation, like, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to feel a little bit better. Um, the obsession is not lifting. It is just constantly barraging me, like somebody mentioned before. And uh, it's maybe in the form of a resentment, but, you know, you hear these stories in AA, you know, never had the desire to pick up a drink in the, the rest of my life, you know, I had that spiritual awakening. And it's different because my drug lives in my head. Um, and I'd like to believe that, the, you know, progressive victory over lust, that eventually... I'll get to a place where sex is not the only thing on my mind that I can I cannot sexualize every feeling and every object and every person and everything that I see through this filter in my mind 
So being that you know you have quote unquote some lo- some longer term sobriety, has it gotten easier? Do you find that like the the obsession, not necessarily the temptation, but the obsession, the constant thinking about it, has gotten easier and and uh, you feel more stable, less vulnerable in your in your uh, recovery? Thanks. Uh, LB sexaholic. <clears throat> Short answer to your question is yes, it has gotten easier. Um, not totally gone by any means, just like Will said. And just like my sponsor has told me, you know, I still get tempted to lust, you know, constantly throughout the day. Um, the difference is what I what I do with that temptation today, and that just just like what Will said, you know, surrender. I was trying to find. Um, the section here in the 12 and 12 where it talks about uh, the removal of our defects and um, you know it makes it in 12 and 12 it makes a difference between the the obsession or the desire to drink and the temptation of acting out our other um, defects and how the desire to drink uh, is the only one that you know the you know alcoholics are granted 100% um, immunity from or, or whatever and so I think that doesn't quite translate into uh, into um, essay recovery. Uh, you know, it says here, having been granted a perfect release from alcoholism, why then shouldn't we be able to achieve by the same means a perfect release from every other difficulty or defect? This is a riddle of our existence, the full answer to which may be only in the mind of God. Um, and, and then it goes on. Um, so... I think I'll just stop with that because we're out of time. Thanks. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Will, for joining me on such short notice. Thanks, everyone else who had uh, questions and comments. Um, it was a good meeting. Uh, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. Principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Um, let's see. Why don't we close with the uh, third step prayer? Third step prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties and victory over them may bear witness to those I have help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will always. Keep coming back. It works if you work it together. It says you're worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. 
Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.